Hello everyone, welcome to the Breaking Uneven podcast. We love to talk shop, uncover the beauty of failures and play a few games. Today we have with us the founder of Subco Coffee, Rahul Reddy. From the University of Southern California to Warner Brothers to Google to Tata to King's College London to Kroll to Subco. And I've left a lot out there. Um, that's quite the journey, Rahul. And thank you so much for coming here today. Um, to kick us off, let's get to the crux of Subco. So we play our first game, the Twitter Pit Challenge. Um, so as you know, Twitter is known for its 280 character limit on every tweet, which sometimes makes it a little difficult to convey your thoughts. It takes around 20 seconds to speak 280 characters. So we want to transfer this challenge to you to explain to our subco in 20 seconds. Uh, we won't make it easy. We want you to also use one emoji and one hashtag in your tweet. Let us know if you have any questions and then when you're ready, we can get started. I think this is the hardest interview question I've ever had. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. It's good to exercise my brain. Okay, one emoji, one hashtag. Yeah. Right? Are you ready? Um, yes. Okay, perfect. Okay, I'm going to go with um, hashtag uh, reimagining, hashtag redesigning the contribution of the subcontinent to the rest of the world uh, through craft. And uh, the emoji I would use is, I'd use, I'm going to pick three, sorry, not just one. So I'm going to get um, the coffee cup, um, a dude in a turban to represent South Asia, and, um, and, um, and a paintbrush to represent design. It went over 30, uh, it went over like, yeah, 20 seconds, around 30 seconds, <laughs> but bonus points for using multiple emojis, I think. Yeah, come on, I, I tripled your emoji uh, allocation, so there you go. Yes, definitely. But, uh, you know, something really interesting from that tweet uh, that you just shared with us, there was no mention of the word coffee or subco Yeah, there. I thought of the same thing. Mm. What? So, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, thanks, Anuj, I mean, for noticing. Uh, that was fairly, um, I guess, no pun intended for this podcast, but by, by design. Um, so, so I, um, you know, the, the, the thing is that a lot of times I get asked this question around, um, what, what essentially people try to kind of seem to try to articulate to me, uh, the notion that why does Subco feel different? Right. And I, and I guess I, I can't answer that because I guess I'm one of its, I guess, principal architects. So it's difficult to kind of explain, uh, <laughs> The foundation, foundational elements in enough detail to um, to kind of convey that. But what I would say for sure is that it, it's always started off as a mission-oriented uh, brand that did not um, need to necessarily be. It, it turned out that my passions were coffee and bread, but the idea that is Subco could apply to a lot of different things, a lot of different industries, a lot of different craft processes. So I, I, I very, I very. Um, uh, I'd say it was sort of by design that I created uh, an extensible understanding of what this redefinition and redesigning of the subcontinent from a global viewer's point of view would look like, feel like, and how it would be touched sensorially, how your, your, your soul would be touched in some capacity through things like type and linguistic diversity, and how all of that ties into really high-quality um, agricultural produce that was being finished in this kind of design-driven manner for people. And that's, and that's sort of why I think Subco hopefully speaks to people in a way that uh, transcends the products that uh, we create. Wow, that's absolutely, I mean, it's so much, there's so much more to that sentiment than one would, you know, assume um, there to be. I think we'll get into that a lot more uh, after, our, after our second challenge. So let's, let's get into the second challenge. Um, which is, it's called Two Lies, One Truth. Um, and the idea is to understand a little more about your journey with Subco. And so whether it's challenges or your biggest achievements, the idea is that you give us three statements from which one explains the actual big moment at Subco and the other two are false statements. 
and then we have to guess the correct one. Which one is the truth? <laughs> oh wow. Uh, okay, wait. Three, two lies and a truth, and the truth has to be something regarding Subco, correct? Yes. Or all of them have to be regarding Subco. All, all of all of them. Yeah. Okay. okay. And we've done our research, so it's not going to be easy. <laughs> the next, the next vertical <laughs> that Subco is planning to tackle uh, as a business will be uh, craft tea. Um, the idea of Subco emanated from a long shower in a bathroom in Goa, um, and. Um, the favorite piece of baked good that I believe um, that I that I have at Subco is the uh, vegan Mosambi tea cake. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Can I? I'm just gonna take a stab at this really quick. I think the tea one is the truth, and the other. <laughs> Again, the only reason I say that is because it's, it's you sell it on the website, <laughs> the crafties. <laughs> but Johnny, do you want to take a guess in case that's not it? Um, even my first thought was the tea. Um, but yeah, I think, I, yeah, I would stick with the tea, but I think that the second one is not far from the truth. There's like some underlying um, notion on like where the idea yeah. came from. <laughs> Should I review? Yes. yes, yes, let's do the review. Okay, so um, the answer is number two. It was conceived oh. of in a hot, in a, in a 35 minute sort of shower moment that I was having <laughs> in Goa. And I, there was literally actually this like funny, I've never told this story on an, on an interview, so I guess this is the best way to do it. Um, so there was like this, you know, like sometimes your, your glass will like fog up on the, you know, in a, in a fancy hotel bathroom. That I was there, I was there for a work offset. I couldn't have afforded to stay in this place on my own, and um, and like yeah, and and then sort of the name, the portmanteau that is the subcontinent, subculture, and the meaning being for everybody in Hindustani languages kind of occurred to me, and I like wrote it on the on the glass, and it just made sense. So that's that's sort of the truth. The there is a a I can't, I don't know if I'm going to tell you about it today. There is a major new article <laughs> that we are working on, but. It is not tea as of yet. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. And the Mosambi tea cake is delicious, but it's funny because I never eat it, and there's this like cult following for the yeah. vegan tea cake at Subco, and I don't quite understand <laughs> it, but it's there, and uh, it's, it's so it's not. I love it, but it's not my favorite thing. For me, it's the it's the chocolate banana cake. That thing's amazing. I mean, that has its own following as well. I know all, yeah. I and mean, a lot of my friends that just go and just to pick that up. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> but to um, get started, you mentioned that you personally had like a passion for coffee and for bread and things like that. So, just how did Subco? I know you said that it started, like the idea came up in a shower, but like, can you take us through your thought process on like how you thought of it and where did that love come from? Sure. Um, you know the way the way that I kind of encapsulate this, guys, and I and I think um, I, I can connect this maybe for your audience as well in, in a certain in a certain light. Um, I, I've had the sort of distinct distinct privilege of, of living in a few different countries for most of my life, and in, in to get more granular, I was I've spent most of my sort of adult life between London and New York, and. Um, and a bit before that as a student in Los Angeles. And aside from having, you know, I can, I can sort of wax lyrical about my relationship with coffee and bread from a pure kind of consumer product point of view and the nuances and how we create product and why. But the main takeaway, I think, really, is that what I realized living in these cities was that there was a, it was, it's a two-part piece. Like, first, there was a global movement occurring towards hyper-traceable, uh, small batch, uh, rotational um, curation of agricultural products that were presented through a design-led process to the end consumer. That was the first takeaway. The second was that when it came to coffee and baking, and coffee in particular, um, 
out of about 25 countries or maybe 23 countries that produce coffee agriculturally in the world, um, India has actually turned out to be the fifth to seventh largest producer, depending on what you what research you're looking at. And for some, for a country that is the fifth to sixth largest producer of coffee in the entire globe, I was feeling very, I was feeling that it was very odd as to why India was never present in any craft coffee experiential sense, uh, whether it was through a brick and mortar cafe or through a retail product anywhere in the world that I was living. Um, and I found this very odd and very curious. And so, no, no pun intended. But, but I, I sort of, I sort of, I thought coffee was super interesting because it's, if you really think about it, um, it's sort of the only commodity that has achi- uh, achieved uh, cultural, cultural. It's sort of a cultural tour de force around the world. Whether that's because of its ability to, you know, stimulate through the caffeine and hence spur socialization or or, or what what have you or the fact that many, many different, um, more advanced economies around the world have created coffee into a, uh, into, into a highly uh, specialized and niche um, sort of understanding of the product. Um, for whatever set of reasons, it's the only edible segment at, at relative scale that exists, which connects, which connects the developing world to the developed world. And the reason why I mention this is, Coffee, the way you experience specialty coffee anywhere in the world is actually through the lens of the country that the coffee beans you're consuming has come from. And the nuances within that country, the region, the terroir, um, the traceability. And so I thought for me as, as sort of a, a kid that came from an Indian background and was growing up in the U.S. for the most part, I thought this was fascinating transcendence of, of, my, of the two parts of my life. And so I said, wait, why, why does India not have a role to play in this? And that's sort of where the, the passion to kind of um, create that bridge um, perhaps one day kind of emanated from. And, um, and then, yeah, I did, I did my research and I figured either, you know, I was like very curious about it because I was like either Indian coffee is sort of just terrible and at the agricultural level it just never survives. The yield is really bad. The yield question I already answered. There's a lot of coffee. That's not the problem. So either there was some kind of a quality problem which I, I, I discovered over time was not at all entirely true. There was a problem uh, around what's called processing of the coffee in the sense that there was no incentivization from the consumer level for farmers to invest more in processing coffee better because there wasn't a premium segmentation for the crop. And so hence, there was really a brand and marketing problem and a design problem. And I look at brand marketing, I mean, all of it hinges back to design at the end of the day. That's, that's what I've understood um, quite deeply for a long time. I mean, I think obviously now design cannot be in a vacuum and, and communication design is, is everything. But I think, I think um, in, in essential terms, um, there, there was a problem around the perception and understanding of what Indian coffee could represent in a way that countries like Colombia, Ethiopia, Brazil had kind of mastered um, uh, in their own right. So I said, look, I can't solve all of the problems of Indian coffee. But maybe I can provide an outlet and um, an opportunity for both the farm level and the consumer level to feel that India can exist in the global tapestry. And I have to do a lot of re-engineering for that to happen. That's that's interesting to see, like, the thought behind it. But I'm also curious to know, like, what was your state of mind at that point? Like, when you realized that there is a difference in terms of like the coffee abroad and here and you wanted to solve this problem. Were you looking to start something of your own? Were you looking to quit your job? Like where were you mentally in terms of um, the process and how long did it take for you to think of this idea and then execute it? Like how long was the research process and like things like that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. You know, the first, the first thing is um, typically, um, you know, those in my position, you know, maybe living in another country at the time. I, I was living in New York when, and then and then in London, and I sort of went back and forth for a bit. But the notion of starting something in in, in coffee would have naturally meant, okay, let me find uh, a good set of farm farmer relationships and import some coffee and then start a shop, right? And this was the natural recommendation made to me by most people because in in coffee terminology. We are at, like, we're, we're sitting in India, right? So we are at origin. We are in an origin country. Now, 
the notion of creating a great consumer brand from an origin country, utilizing the origin country's produce, is fairly unheard of. There's a couple of examples of it around the world, but it's, it's, it's immensely difficult because you're, you're kind of having to create the market from scratch domestically. Now, a lot of other, a lot of, a lot of other players have come into the coffee space that have done a, a commendable job in creating an appetite for traceable coffee, better cafe experiences, and I think a bunch of them, including brands like Blue Tokai, have really set the, the groundwork for something like this to ever be attempted or experimented with. So I have a lot of respect for those brands. Um, I, I think in, in my case, um, to answer your question, Janvi, the, the timelines were sort of, um, I think concept-wise, I'd say the, the, th the thing about our story, it's really hard to answer this because usually people are like, oh, you had an idea, and then, oh, you tried to find a business model for it, and then, oh, you found an agency to help you create the brand. And for me, I find all these concepts to be really foreign. Like, for me, it's like all of those things all existed together, and all of it had to find representation in the right manner, and that's where, like, Anirudh came into the picture, and that's, I'd love to kind of speak to you more about that when relevant or in another conversation, but, but essentially, um, I, I don't. I can't segment it so easily in my case. I, I, I think what I would say though is that from conception in some sense to reality, this took about. Um, I, I was working in Bombay as a as a risk consultant um, in the sort of loosely in the political and economic risk uh, analyst kind of space, and I had decided to leave that job, and I was kind of grappling in twenty, um, the beginning of twenty nineteen. And I was grappling with this idea uh, around, do I just go back to the States? Do I, did my sort of, um, did my experiment with moving to Bombay and living in India and contributing to the South Asian future in some way, uh, did it just kind of flail and peter out? And that was sort of where I was at. But the one thing that kept pulling me back and saying, look, like, I, I felt most passionate about that I felt like I could action was uh, around coffee. And eventually around around bread and, and that's where Daniel my partner came into the picture um, but but essentially um, 2019 let's say Jan Feb is when the sort of thought the serious thought process began around okay am I really going to dedicate my, my sort of immediate term life to this project um, to this idea and um, I decided you know I had to convince a bunch of people including my family that I wasn't insane to kind of do something and in coffee and they were like oh you're going to start a coffee shop and I was like well there will be a shop but it's not just a shop it's some it, <laughs> it, it was it was quite it was quite you know challenging to explain these things to Desi parents and 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 helping them understand I mean brand in general let alone coffee and like you know the USA like I don't it was very difficult to uh sorry for my terrible Hindi but that's that's sort of the reception that my ideas initially got, and um, and I'd say from then I, I, it was very rapid, Johnny. For me, the idea and the concept was, I would like to say, incredibly uh, formed. It was like very fully baked for quite a long time, which meant the real problem for me was building the subject matter expertise to execute the products in a uh, because to execute the products in a way that would genuinely elevate what was available already in the Indian market. And that was really important for me because obviously it can't be smoke and mirrors. I mean, think these things have to coincide, right? So great design, great concept, brand, arc, all of that stuff is, is obviously immensely important. But how does that coincide with a, a genuine connection with the product that translates, right? So, so for me, that meant going back to New York City. I, I literally begged... I used to work at Google for some time and, and I had some, some contacts back from back then in New York who basically the funny story is Google had one of the coolest coffee shops in the city in its office in New York, right? So when I was working there and it's all like free and it's, yeah, it's all very, you know, very Google only kind of thing that is possible and it's not reality, but hey, it was nice while I was there. And, and, and so the guy who managed the coffee program at Google in, in New York became sort of a friend or an acquaintance and um, I hit him up years after I left and I said hey man I'm really keen to learn how to roast coffee because I didn't want to to lean on any consultants or anybody else who 
was already maybe in the domestic market here to kind of say, hey, I have a brand idea. Can you roast the coffee for me? Then I label it. Then I package it. Then someone else comes and helps me open a cafe. And then I say, okay, for them. And then I put it together and I hope it succeeds. This, this approach was not feasible for what Subco's mission was. So I had to go learn how to roast coffee. I had to learn how to cup it. I, I felt like I had an inherent, of course, knowledge base just from my own research for a while. And I felt pretty strongly, more importantly than the technicalities of learning how to roast, which I believed could be learned over a period of time. The bigger question was, did I have the palate and the sensory understanding of coffee to backward engineer products that would actually be innovative and work from the farm level to the consumer? So that's where I challenged myself the most, where I, I went and did a certification in New York called the Arabica Q Grader, which is essentially like a fancy way of saying that I'm a coffee sommelier. That is a globally certified uh, wow. program, commands a lot of, I guess, respect in the, in, the, in the sort of coffee community. Interestingly, it also means that I, I've been awarded the, the ability to um, grade, uh, grade coffee that comes from a farm, such that if I, if I score the coffee higher, that farmer, in theory, can actually charge more money for their crop. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, and they go by this you know, certified pro, uh, process. So, so there's a couple of layers to it, but that plus learning how to roast um, in New York took me about, I mean, I probably spent about four months in that process. Um, and then from there, I had basically already started a conversation with Daniel before that. And I kind of said, look, if I crack this coffee thing in some way, you know, um, would you be willing to work with me uh, on, on this as a, a, an entire concept? Um, Daniel, I don't know how much you guys know about him, but basically he... Uh, has been living in India for about 15 years now. He is originally from Chicago, from the U.S. And I don't know how to describe Dan except to say that he's a savant. I mean, he's he's a genius. He's I, I think it's I'm certainly biased to a degree, but I do believe that he is uh, one of the world's greatest minds when it comes to bread and viennoiserie. So, um, and I mean the world. So, and I and I I feel like I. I've done enough research of the space to kind of have some credibility on, on saying that. And, and so he specializes in very technically challenging baked goods, which means a lot of times in India, you know, people hear about bakery here and they think two things. One is desi wala bakery, so like, you know, <laughs> and stuff. And the se- which is fine, which makes sense. We are in India. The second is cakes, patisserie, French bakery. And Daniel is neither of those things. Subco is kind of an amalgamation of things, but, but, but Daniel's expertise, which I believed was really critical for Subco to achieve its goals, were to kind of showcase sourdough bread and essentially different versions of croissants, which are otherwise termed as viennoiserie, laminated dough, essentially. How could those two things be presented in a wholly new uh, quality standard light, technical prowess, and flavor innovation? Um, which would also become localized and indigenized in several ways. And a great example of that is the Halim quiche or the espresso stuffed croissant that we you know, utilize our single origin coffee from India to make the cream out of. So that's, that's sort of where me and Daniel kind of came together. Um, and he thought that the, the sort of uh, mission and the concept was, I guess, worthwhile for him to be a part of. So, so uh, that brings us to end of 2019. I essentially, maybe September 2019 is when I returned to Bombay. Um, to fast forward, I had identified this decrepit house in the middle of nowhere in the bylanes of Bandra. And, uh, and I guess this is the other challenge is I had to convince everybody in my life that this was not the worst idea ever was to put this coffee roastery and bakery in this random place that nobody could ever find. And, and genuinely, if you've been to Subco in Chapel Road, uh, in, we call it Mary Lodge because that's the name that the, the space has had since 1925. Um, there's no parking. There's hardly any space to walk there. There's no drop-off point. There's essentially, it almost feels like we don't want you to find it, right? And um, and I guess uh, I guess that's that's what I felt would be needed. I, I almost created a, a sense of self-selection to say people that are ready for this pilgrimage for an elevated understanding of coffee and bread might make the effort. And the chances of that were pretty low. Like, I thought this was 
most likely going to fail, but I was either going to do it this way or Subco wouldn't be done at all. My God, you've just stolen stolen our next question, which was oh, about... <laughs> no, but you know, the question was about the location of, you know, the first Subco and what I've... I mean, I've been to it, you know, at least a hundred times and I, I find it really charming, right? It does add to, adds a lot to the charm of the place. And I know people that make that effort to go there. And yeah, I guess the idea of the, the question was, you know, that, you know, now that you've got these other locations, you've got the craft tree in Bacalan and obviously a bunch of different pop-up like stalls. Um, is that charm still there? Because for me, if I go to Subco, I want to go to that Chapel Road one. I don't want to go to any of the others, right? So how does, how does that, how's that image as of today? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um... Anuj, you know, I, I think there's there's a couple of there's a couple of layers to it. The first is that I would agree with you. I mean, my 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 favorite space in which we do anything probably always will be the Chapel Road space. Um, so I don't think there's any I don't think there's any need to be shy about that. I, I think there is a unique, <laughs> a truly unique character that that space um, brought to the brought brought to the forefront. And I mean, I, I hope that in any in a future space we can one up Mary Lodge somehow. But uh, but I but I do believe very deeply in, in 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 the heart and soul of what that space has you know helped us do. That being said, if you really break down our current spaces, let me tell you a bit about the philosophy around space, um, spatial design, the understanding of why we've done what we've done um, from from the point of view of, of physical brick and mortar uh, is. So so the we only actually have right now we only actually have two two real flagship stores, right? Or, or cafes, experience centers, whatever you want to call them. Um, Mary Lodge, which you described in Bandra, and uh, the Craftery, uh, which is our uh, roasting and uh, sort of centralized bread production facility in uh, the neighborhood of Baikala West uh, in Bombay. And if you really think about that space, um, it was actually a very, uh, it was quite a risky decision in many ways, and, and there was a concept attached to it. So, the Craftery, well, the fact that it has a name, I guess, in itself tells you something. But essentially, we converted essentially what was an old printing press in this printing area called Jack Printers in Baikala. And um, Baikala was chosen um, very, very specifically for a few reasons. The first is that, so it's not happenstance that we just have a roastery in Baikala, right? So that's the first thing I wanted to kind of explain. Um, there's one practical reason which was very difficult to kind of nail down because there aren't a lot of spaces that can provide for the infrastructure we need at an affordable cost that are essentially central ge geographically to both the suburbs and the south of Bombay. If you really look at the map, you triangulate to Baikal. So, so there was one practical reason for that. The second is that if we were to open a space, uh, sorry, if we were to centralize our production, which we needed to do from a product point of view. Essentially what I mean by centralized production is have a larger facility to roast coffee in, to package, and you know, to bake bread and, and croissants in, um, in their base form. And then we would do finishing bakes and, and flavor piping and everything else that fresh in each of the spaces you find us in, right? That was sort of the concept. Um, and, and again, the distance is only 30 minutes, so it's not like freshness is being lost in, the tra in translation from this facility. So, so basically, that was the overall premise. Now, I was drawn by two things um, uh, in, in the craft tree. One is the fact that it does have a, a, a historical, um, uh, sorry, a, a, a kind of um, an identity before what it is today, which was, which was used for printing and, and being the kind of design-driven brand experience that we are. I thought that was quite apt. And the second, and the second piece is that um, Baikala as an area and as, an, as a neighborhood, I believed for quite a while was, was sort of the closest thing to like an unearthed Brooklyn that Bombay maybe had. And, and I sort of said, okay, can we be a part of rejuvenation in a neighborhood that actually has a, a very rich history by the Mazgong docks um, with a lot of commerce that was flowing through this area. It's gone through many waves of sort of ins and outs of sort of development. There were, of course, a couple of businesses here before us. There was the Mag Street, Magazine Street Kitchen that was there. Um, the Bombay uh, Sweet Shop had come up in this neighborhood too. And 
I said, look, if we're going to be um, trying to kind of create a community of artisans and, and craftspeople, um, Baikala seems like a place which allows us to not only have a bit more space at a, at a, at a sort of affordable, um, affordable tick, but also allows us to maybe one day build a community of, 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 of small businesses and uh, of, of, uh, of a very, let's say, creatively driven sort of entrepreneurs and people that could actually rejuvenate this neighborhood uh, into the future. So that's, that's sort of that. Wow. And, you know, I think I totally agree. It is quite important to choose the space, not only from a functional perspective, but also from a, from a, from a brand perspective. But then, and as you said, you've got two main locations, which is Chapel Road and now Baikala. Yes. So and then when the it comes sorry, to... I didn't, I didn't answer the full, the full example, but <laughs> that's true. Okay, okay. So, 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 I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. So, so... To, to just finish there, Anuj, um, after those two stores, what we've done is essentially we've very, very carefully curated a host of, there's, there's five right now, which are, as, you, as you've said, they're kind of like fixed, fixed pop-ups, you could say, and which we call Subcomini, which is a condensed kind of experiential layer to brand-aligned partners that we believe adds value to the experience of people that are broadly of a very similar mindset in their consumption of other products to us in coffee and bread. So uh, this, was, this was something that occurred to me where I said, the idea was never foot traffic, it was never optimizing placement of the brand, it was never anything like that. It was essentially the following. Which brands in the city are doing something that we believe is, is heavily curate, curatorial, curated, bespoke in nature, um, prioritizing oftentimes design and design thinking and that's in different segments right and sort of what what ended up happening was I drilled that down to of course there are other spaces that also do great work in 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 with who we are not currently partnering with um so it's not to take away from those brands it's just that what ended up happening was we were um we were approached by the Bombay Shirt Company um who you know are now uh, an amalgamation of three or four different um fully bespoke, custom-tailored brands. And I, I thought this was very interesting because South Asia has such a strong history of tailoring. And I said, oh, which brand is actually trying to reimagine tailoring for the kind of contemporary population? And this brand sort of really sticks out in that respect. Um, and so we, we decided to partner with them. Then um, we decided to partner with Kitab Khana, which is this you know beautiful antique bookstore, which is really one of a kind in Fort. And we were they were kind enough to kind of consider us for their for their space because they wanted to change, um, you know, uh, in their space and they didn't want like a, a proper restaurant there anymore. They wanted something that was a bit more light touch, a bit more um, culturally and, and and brand wise integrated into their into their overall store. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, opportunity for us to um, have a bit of subco uh, uh, experience available to people. And um, and then the other the other two kind of spots right now that we're working with. Um, are the Abode Boutique Hotel in Kolaba, which is really close by to the Taj uh, and the um, Gateway of India. And it's, if you've been there, it's, it's a beautifully designed space um, with a, a very clear commitment to kind of how does the contemporary and the old Bombay kind of coalesce in, in, from a spatial point of view. So, and then lastly, there's the Quorum Members Club in Lower Perel, which is not, not typically open to the public, actually. It's, it's a, a member space. But again, a lot of the similar principles around, uh, around which I spoke. So these are the spaces in which we decided that there could be um, a, very, a very, very curated footprint for Subco without compromising on our ideals, without going into a space of just looking for foot traffic or just trying to expand the business. Um, because I don't believe in that principle at all. And I believe that the only way a brand like Subco can or should you know, scale in any way is to do it in a very painful, meticulously curated sense. And there, yeah. th that is the only possible way in which we can do it because the identity, the mission, it's, it's, it's too inbuilt, it's too overarching. So I, I think it's safe to say that any spatial pursuits that we have into the future will probably involve things around heritage, will involve things around um, how 
the fabric of, of the urban environment that we are in, in whether it's in Bombay or elsewhere, um, play into the subcommission um, and our design thinking and our way of designing spaces, what, what is most conducive to all of that? I think that's, that's really the, the, the effort. And I'm not concerned about how visible, how much foot traffic, where exactly it's placed. I mean, of course, we want to be in uh, having our brand in, 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 in a location where we believe, you know, folks that might appreciate it um, do visit from time to time. But I think beyond that, I think I'm not at all concerned, and I think our choices of the Craft Tree and, and Mary Lodge prove that. I'm not at all concerned about placing things in a place which is necessarily, you know, um, most conducive to commercial success. No, I think, I mean, um, you know, I've had, I agree with the fact that it's a tough choice to not partner with people as much as it is to partner with people. And it's, it requires a lot of patience, right? Like, especially with the kind of growth that Sapko saw in its first year, part in the first three months, of course, it's, it's easy to just say yes to all opportunities. But, you know, keeping that overarching mission in mind and everything, it's, it's super important, I agree. But, you know, I've had the privilege of going to the Subco at Bombay Shirt Company and at the Quorum Club. And I, it's just a random thought. But one thing that really stood out to me was that you all didn't have the milk fund there. And then obviously I saw the entire offering and I realized so it's, it is the entire uh, palette of coffee offering, but a very small selection of the baked goods. So, you know, considering that you even so far on this call, it's been a coffee plus bread brand. Um, is that something that's mainly a logistical, logistical issue? Well, it, it, it's a good question. You know, it, it depends. I, I think there is a long journey ahead for breads in India. I think I think we are trying to play the role of. Um, in some sense, it's funny because in one way, I would agree that we're we're very much a, a, a boutique experiential brand. In the other sense, I feel like we're now kind of bestowed with this mission of being like, hey guys, like bread can be a part of your daily consumption pattern, like bread in some way. Now, of course, people have always liked cake in India. People have always liked, I mean, it's not like we're the first people to ever bake anything. That's not what I mean. <laughs> but what I mean is that to create, um, to create a frequent consumption of, let's say, something like a croissant, I, I, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there was a cultural relevance for a product of that nature um, maybe even a couple of years ago in, 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 in the same respect. So, so I, and neither, neither for something like a sourdough loaf. Um, so, so I think to answer your question, there is a logistical element to it. Um, it's less that though than, um, because, we, because we did centralize our production, we, we do have the ability now to scale up our baked goods and to have them be more accessible in various parts of the city. Um, we, we, we kind of believe that I think the availability of both beans and bread in a wholesale uh, context. Um, I, I, I've always been on this very uh, on this journey of like refinement with that because I, I, I look at it more as think about it this way: if you give your beans or your breads to a partner, whoever it might be, um, who doesn't really know how to take care of them, right, or doesn't want to, or just feels like hey. I have a good quality product, I'm just going to throw it at a customer and hopefully they buy it. I think that does a disservice to the craftspeople behind the product, to our brand, and you know, the whole, the whole, the whole, the whole thing. So our, our approach has been much slow, in fact it seems very rapid, but like you rightly said Anuj, like, there's been like, I don't know how many no's in the process of saying these five yeses, you know? So, so for us, although it seems like there's been a rapid growth stream, I think it could have gone in a very different direction yeah. if I had kind of just let the products just flood into everywhere. And, and maybe that would have been a commercially good thing for Subco, but I don't think the mission of Subco would have been um, retained. And I don't know if we would be you know, talking today. So I think, I think there isn't as much of a logistical problem as um, a, a set of principles that we require when we think about you know, why to partner with somebody um, how to make it happen? Is there training that they're open to with regards to how to brew coffee effectively? Like, if, if you have a coffee at the Quorum, I want it to be identical 
to the coffee yeah. you have at Mary Lodge to the degree possible. Coffee is always a little variable. Extraction can always go a little bit in and out and a little bit awry. It's not a perfect science. It, it takes immense amounts of concentration and training to get it exactly the same. And that's that's the fact behind specialty coffee and craft coffee. It is, it is inherently variable. And of course, you need to have a lower margin of error, but which comes through effective roasting, uh, consistency in the roast profiling, great training. But there is variability that's possible. And I think all of us have experienced that at, at, at any coffee shop. Like there will be some days where the coffee is a little different, some days where it's not. Hopefully that, that can get um, reduced um, by choosing the right partners to work with. I think throughout our conversation so far, it's really interesting to see how much thought goes behind like every aspect of what Subco is involved in. Whether it's, yeah, like from launch, the thought process, to like the locations, to your products and everything. What's the most like difficult thing of running um, Subco or like a coffee and bread company? Uh, I'm not saying this because you guys are the ones I'm talking to, but it's it's <laughs> so one it's it's design. So 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 the I mean, there's a lot of difficult things uh, to be fair, but 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 I would say uh, a, a combination of very consistent R and D work on the product side, which is very very uh, intent driven, right? So so something like something like let's say, I don't know, the Sif on the Rocks, which is a beverage that we developed, which is essentially the South Indian filter on the rocks is what we call it. Essentially, it's, it's kind of a cross between a Vietnamese iced coffee and your typical South Indian mala like filter coffee. So it's not a very complex beverage to create, but we had to create a cultural contextuality for cold coffee in a specialty line. And that, that was the difficult bit. Creating something like a Halim quiche does not happen just by happenstance, right? It has, there has to be enough codification of what we are trying to achieve with that product. I look at it a lot more like a tech company would look at developing a set of products. I don't look at it as, okay, we'll just, oh, this might be tasty, so let's just release it. Like, it's, it's really, it, that's maybe 50% of what it is, um, maybe 60%, but no more than that. I think the rest of it is, is very concept-driven. Um, but the hardest thing, honestly, till date, has been we took a decision after our initial partnership with Aniru, uh, the Big Fat Minimalist, in creating the, the brand identity for Subco, um, where me and Ani were you know, spending several months on kind of crafting this. Um, I decided to go in a very different direction on this particular key point, which was once he handed over you know, the first version of Subco to me, I said, look, Ani, I mean, I... I can't, you know, you run your own agency and you, you do your work and I, I, I can't expect you to be working with me and for me forever. So um, what do I do? And I sat and thought about it and I said, okay, well, obviously I have to find another agency that kind of tends to the, he was not, he was not going to be a full service agency that kind of just tended to things that way. And so I was like, I got to find a good agency. But then I sat down and again, and I thought about it. I was like, what have I learned through this process? I learned that with Ani. I said, I learned that I might understand some visceral things about brand building and about design and and maybe I have more of a creative bent than I realized. So so I basically decided let me test that theory out uh, by by essentially establishing the beginnings of what would become we kind of affectionately refer to as the designery, which is our own creative studio. So we decided to eschew the idea of going the agency route and we decided to build everything in house. So that first started with one graphic design intern named Radhika who then kind of became sort of a full-time um, graphic designer on board. Um, and then, you know, Jeff Nelson came on board, who was great on, um, on video and photography and music. And that sort of kind of grew and snowballed and it became copywriting and, and visual design and graphic and motion and all sorts of stuff. And that has been incredibly challenging to figure out because as you guys know very well, I mean, that's, that's its own business, that's its own thing in, in entirety. So, Navigating, building the business, developing the products, and having such a very, a very, very close relationship with every single creative asset that's ever produced is something that is very challenging, also very rewarding, and I believe it's um, fundamental to Subco being what it is currently. Yeah, definitely. I think like nowadays, there's so much importance on brand and what you represent and things like that beyond just the products itself. So it's so important to put together something that 
people relate with and like be a part of like a community altogether. Um, so in terms of Subco and like everything that you're working on, it started with an idea of like the subcontinent of India and like it being part of a global uh, scale. So would the dream then be to have like either Subco pop-ups or like these cafes in cities that you previously lived, like LA, London, New York, or what, what, where, where does Subco go next? Oh, man. Yeah, don't ask me that question. <laughs> um, I, I guess the answer is, um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's always been a dream. Uh, I think we have our work cut out for us if we're going to make that happen. It's not... Um, I, I've always fashioned uh, Subco very strictly through a global lens from the outset, which means that I have never looked, you know, I've never done like a, a, a local market SWOT analysis or like sat there and been like, okay, where exactly do we, I, I just never operated that way. I said, look, I've sort of had the privilege of experiencing and purchasing from and being a consumer of a, a certain array of brands around the world. It didn't matter what some of them could be in India, but it didn't matter where they were. The point was, who do I believe are thought leaders in this space? And how do we participate in that conversation with them? And so I don't know how much, you know, I don't know how far along we've come in, 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 in achieving that level and that standard and that resonance uh, with people, but that, that's up to you and others to decide. But I, I think that we're um, very committed to that. And I think that as and when we feel we've um, gotten close enough uh, to, those, to those ideals, um, we'll hopefully, you know, and if people keep supporting us the way that they have, which is very critical for us to have any opportunity to do that, um, I would love the, I would love the chance to uh, to showcase Subco in uh, in another city outside of India, and it's 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 a very real aspiration, and I have to figure out how to get there. I think it's also important to like remember that it's also just in three years. I think like when I heard of uh, what Subco does and like where and it's not, it's not, it's not just three on years it. Yet. Yeah. It's two and a half. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 It's, a little, a, little, a little under three years. Yeah, yeah. so... But, but to be honest, we look at it operationally that... I look at Subco as having started in essentially in August of 2020. Okay. So, in fact, I really look at this as a two and a half year trajectory because before that, we didn't have a cafe. We had retail beans and nothing else. We didn't, we didn't have half of our business live. So, essentially from March to August, let's say March to July 2020, there was no real... Subco as such. I mean, we were just working on survival and that's it. And, um, and so, yeah, from August to August, two years plus a few months. Yeah, fair. So, like, I think, like, initially I was definitely surprised to see how much y'all have done so far in just, like, two and a half years as well. So, like, there's a lot more to come and it's exciting to see how, like, Indian brands are uh, venturing out of India into, like, all the Western markets. And, like, I'm definitely excited to see, like, Subco being part of all of these cities. Well, I hope you're right. I hope we can uh, we can manage that. Yeah. So um, our next challenge is red flags. Uh, we're gonna give you three situations composed of two things that are gonna be great, and one that's not so great. So the red flag. Uh, we've adapted these for Subco, and then you have to pick which of these three, which one of these three situations you'd rather be in, and like tell us why. Um, there might be some things that you've already achieved and hopefully like none of the red flags have happened or will happen, but it's just in order to see what you would rather choose. So the first situation okay. is that Subco's brand is ready and absolutely amazing. Uh, to the location has been beautifully designed and ready to open. Uh, but the red flag is a national lockdown hits three days after launch. Uh, situation two is that Subco's merchandise is going through the roof. You win a coffee of the year award, but a customer complains of food poisoning after eating the poly BG. Uh, situation three is that Subco is, become, uh, is booming across five countries. Starbucks approaches you for an acquisition, but your latest campaign is received horribly on social media. Wow. Um... <laughs> they're not all they're not all unreal situations situation one is a real uh, yeah that's yeah, i guess i guess um 
I don't know about amazing and all of that. That that's subjective in situation one. But I, I'd say the heart of situation one was real. Uh, that actually happened. Um, so that one I'm, I'm gonna remove from the list um, because I, well, I mean, interestingly, you know, I've never been able to still answer the question around whether I. Um, whether I would have had it differently uh, with regards to what happened to us and in, in, in terms of us opening and the immense risk that that, you know, and stress that that put on uh, on the business and on the brand. And I'll never know the answer. I, I guess I guess um, in some way, maybe that developed a, a huge amount of resilience, uh, not only in me personally, but maybe in, in the entirety of the uh, the DNA of everything that we did afterwards. And so maybe that's part of the reason why we've been so stubbornly committed to building Subco in the way that we are trying to build it. So maybe that was a good thing. I don't know, but it was very painful in the moment. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to skip that. Um, but between the other two, that's, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'd have to say, I don't know, but uh, this, is a very, this is a very difficult one, guys. You guys are putting me on the spot. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't decide between the next, the next two. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, uh, situation three, whether it's, you know, Starbucks or somebody else, uh, I guess that that's always a, an interesting, uh, conundrum to be faced with and what would we do and these kind of things. I think it's way too early, uh, for us for that, but, but I think, um, I think, I guess maybe situation three, because I, I'd like to think that, um, the pros in that situation outweigh what I believe we could hopefully explain to people given the amount of effort we put in to our design thinking, our content creation, why this particular campaign just fell completely flat or why we were misaligned or misguided or, you know, why we didn't, why we just didn't hit it. So I, so I think, um, I think I maybe, I guess I would take that scenario. So, you know, just, I, uh thinking behind the three situations. Obviously, situation one is self-explanatory. It's a real situation that happened. But in situation two and three, we wanted to bring out the idea that, you know, situation two, the red flag is something that's at the heart of Subco, which is the actual, um, you know, coffee, bread, whatever it might be. It's at the heart of the brand. In situation three, again, the red flag, which is the design, the communication that Subco maintains. Again, heart of the brand. Um, but then we also wanted to put out, like, you know, a few bits and pieces to see, like, Okay, is merchandising something that's really important to Subco? Or like, you know, would Subco even... That's, that's tough, Anuj, because all those red flags are really important. Like, I mean... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why I couldn't really choose, you know? I mean, um, but, uh, but, I, but of course, I mean, I, I believe for situation three to occur, situation two would have had to happen, you know? Yeah. From the red flag point of view. So, uh, green flag, sorry. So, there's my roundabout <laughs> answer that I would Yeah, I think it's just... Um... You know, whenever we do end up playing red flags, uh, it's always really, it's a very tough choice for a lot of people that, you know, what uh, to let go of and what to like pick. Um, and we do try to put in, you know, the kind of, let's say something really important as a red flag in each situation. Um, so it is a tough one, but I, I, I'm glad you explained to us the kind of circle of thinking that brought you to this answer. Yes. Definitely, and I think it's also interesting to see whether you would think Starbucks um, approaching you for an acquisition, whether that's actually a red flag or a green flag. Like, even that would be interesting to see. Like, what do you think of a corporate, more traditional uh, coffee company acquiring something that's a little more niche and, like, has an element of experience to it? So I think, like, overall, it's interesting to see where, like, founders think, um, how to navigate like the red flags and like again like yeah weighing the pros and cons or which ones they're okay to deal with in order to get the pros exactly <laughs> so we wouldn't be a talk show if we didn't have a rapid fire round <laughs> so let's again it's time to rapid fire the way, is like coffee meets what's it coffee, coffee with, with uh, um, is that the, yeah coffee with Aran, but version? okay right Alrighty, so uh, standard rapid fire rules, we have about three seconds to give a one word answer um, and we'll kick off. So your feeling when someone adds a lot of sugar to their coffee? Uh, 
Empathy. <laughs> Your favorite coffee configuration? Like brewing equipment? Um, you know, brewing equipment plus how you like to have a coffee then. Oh, uh, pour over. Pour over. Okay, awesome. Your favorite sub-collocation. You already answered this, um, so we'll skip it. The scrappiest uh, do thing... Pick, do I have to pick between the children? Uh, <laughs> we know the favorite. Um, the scrappiest thing... Yeah, we know the favorite. Um, the scrappiest thing you've done to build subco. Um, snuck past, can't be one word answer, but snuck past uh, police and uh, EMC officials for months to get to the roastery during the heart of the lockdown, roast coffee and start to send boxes of coffee out to people in Bandung. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I love it. Um, you know, after our conversation, I find this question a little tougher to answer, but one thing you'll never do with Subco. That's tough. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can safely say this. Um, macarons. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. Your favorite coffee that is not Subco. Ooh, wow. Can it be from anywhere? Yeah. Anywhere. Um, really amazing brand and great coffee called Onyx, O-N-Y-X. Um, please okay. check them out, you guys. All the design nerds that might be watching this will, will flip out. <laughs> all right. Then what is the weirdest place from where you have worked? From where I have worked? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, if you think if you find it tough to answer, I can I can you know venture a guess would be your shower in Goa, where yeah, we yeah. with the conception. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> let's, let's go with uh, the Goa shower. Yeah, that, that's the one. The Goa shower. All right then. Books or podcasts? Ooh. Is this politically correct since I'm on a podcast? Where no, you can. No, you can you, uh, you can go for books. Um, I. I Man, I'm 50-50, both. <laughs> All right, iPad or notebook? Ooh, notebook. All right, are you a morning person or a night person? Night. <laughs> and finally, your... All day. <laughs> All day. <laughs> Fair enough. And finally, your favorite social media. Uh, I guess I'd have to say Instagram. Easy answer. Nice. Awesome. So that concludes the rapid fire segment, bringing us towards the end of our conversation. But just one last thing is that we ask every guest of ours to ask a question for the next guest. So first we'll ask you your question and then you can ask a question to our next guest. So your question from our previous guest is, what was your biggest mistake and what would you do differently in building the business? I don't know about, I don't know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what I would do differently. I don't know how many uh, critical mistakes have been made yet. I'm sure they will happen. Uh, but uh, I, I, I'd say certainly things that I could have done a lot better. So, so I, think, um, I think one of them is possibly... Um, I think I think look I'm I'm a, I'm a sort of you know I guess first time entrepreneur so I think I think maybe having a bit uh, more um, uh, literacy on things surrounding um, licensing finance compliance I think all of these elements were things that I think I was underprepared for in, in terms of what I was getting into in the beginning and there was a very harsh learning curve when it came to all of that um, and so I think I'm, 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 uh, I probably would have spent a bit more time uh, immersing myself and perhaps having um, a team member on board from the very outset 
who uh, was much more literate than me uh, in that regard. So probably that, and uh, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. It is, it's, you know, when you're in the kind of F&B space, it is, it is all that more important than, you know, the traditional legal system in India is not all that easy to navigate, especially if you're, you know, you've lived your life abroad. It is, it is quite difficult coming back to that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For me, contextualizing all of that into India was a huge, uh, a huge endeavor. So I think that was, that was the one. Cool. Awesome then. That brings us, you know, to the end of our episode with you, Rahul. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolutely amazing conversation. Um, I think, you know, it's, yeah, it was just absolutely great to learn so much about Sapko. And, you know, I know Sapko really well, but I didn't know half the things that you mentioned to us today. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Anush. It's a real, a real pleasure and honor. And um, please keep up the very important mission that Curious has uh, in the Indian context. And um, also, thank you for supporting us in our, our sort of brand journey to date. So I appreciate that.